Hello and welcome to Meet the Education Researcher. This is a podcast from the Faculty of Education, Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. Hello, my name's Neil Selwyn, and in this episode of Meet the Education Researcher, I'm talking with Michael Thomas from Birkbeck University in the UK. Michael is a professor of cognitive neuroscience, and he's also the director of the Centre for Educational Neuroscience in London. So he's a great person to talk to about the fast-growing interest that neuroscientists are now showing in educational matters. The logic here is that we can only fully make sense of teaching and learning if we have a proper understanding of how the brain works. So in many ways, the coming together of educational research and neuroscience makes perfect sense. However, there's a lot to get to grips with here, especially for a non-psychologist like me. So Michael started off by talking me through the basics of how he would define educational neuroscience. So educational neuroscience, it does have different names. Uh, yes, educational neuroscience, you may have heard of it as um, neuroeducation. Uh, in the United States, they sometimes call it mind, brain and education. So essentially, it's still an emerging field. It is a dialogue between three different disciplines, education, psychology and neuroscience. And, and what kind of launched it to begin with was that the advances in, in understanding in vivo brain function uh, that was brought about by the new innovations in, in brain scanning technology in the 1990s. So uh, as we're understanding more about how uh, how the brain learns, mechanisms of learning, uh, the intuition is that this may be helpful in some way for educators. So the field is, is a dialogue. It's not, not reducing uh, education, just the brains, but a dialogue between multiple disciplines working together to improve educational outcomes. And so in terms of this dialogue then, I mean, we can come on to practical applications in the classroom later, but I mean, in terms of established academic research and education, what is educational neuroscience bringing to kind of conventional understandings of what education is and how education works? So I guess it's part of a wider agenda um, to, to have education as being a kind of cumulative endeavour where we gradually improve outcomes on, on a, I wouldn't necessarily say evidence-based, but at least evidence-informed. Clearly, it's it's more than evidence because we have values in education, right, which are, which are part of a wider uh, cultural debate. So it's an attempt to, to try and understand partly through, through mechanisms of learning, partly through uh, kind of teachers understanding more about uh, how learning is working in their students and, and uh, how their own brains are working as teachers you know, in, in the social situation of the classroom. I'd say for sure that there may be a few kind of brand new things that, that come out of this neuroscience perspective, but, but really more of the focus is about improving what is already apparently working by understanding a, a little bit more about how it works. Sure. So we talk about this idea of a dialogue between neuroscience, psychology and education. I'm really interested in the indirect influence of this idea that neuroscience shapes psychological theory, psychology influences education. And you've written that a, a pure psychology approach that ignores neuroscience is at risk of being misleading for educators. I mean, can you explain that? Yeah. So first of all, I don't want to get too sucked into this kind of disciplinary wars, right? I mean, that that is 
kind of an artifact, a historical artifact about how we organized universities. And, and we split people into departments and said, you'll, you'll be using different, you know, different topics and methodologies. And you'll call yourself a psychology department. You'll call yourself an education department. And then we end up in this slightly bizarre situation of, of disciplines competing with each other, who's best kind of thing. So I, I would prefer to think of this more as like goal-oriented approach. But, but let me answer that point. Um, a lot of what psychology has done in, in its at least cognitive psychology and it's in um, really foundational period in, in the like 1980s has a lot of overlap with artificial intelligence. And, and a lot of that was thinking about different ways that minds could work, right? Based on a sort of engineering analysis about, well, how do computers work? How do minds work? How could they be similar? So a lot about it was, was how minds could work. But at the end of the day, there's only one way that our mind does work, and that is kind of constrained by the biology that's delivering it. So there's certain things that brains can do easily, processing lots of information in context at the same time, and certain things we're not so good at, like logical reasoning. We need a lot of help at to, in order not to make mistakes doing that. So a, a deeper understanding of, of how the the, the constraints of the brain feed into psychology can actually shape what, what is the actual way uh, the mind works rather than all the possible ways it could have worked. And so this kind of interdisciplinary arrangement that you describe where everyone's working together towards a common goal, I mean, that always sounds great in theory, but in practice, I mean, what are the limitations? What have you actually had to kind of struggle with in, in terms to get to that interdisciplinary understanding? I mean, bringing the biology of the brain into the conversation isn't something that educationalists or, or even psychologists have been really used to. Yeah, so, so that there are different kinds of challenges here. I mean, we know that, that even under the best of conditions, translation to practical ac applications in, in the classroom is hard. So educational neuroscience, as I, as I spoke about, was really coming about or, or emerging in, in the late 1990s. But, but psychology as a discipline studying learning and memory, that's been going for like 125 years. And, and there's still practices today in the classroom that we have a lot of evidence are, are not really effective in improving learning. Things like uh, underlining or highlighting text or even summarizing it isn't really useful for learning. But still, we, we have uh, you know, teachers using those methods. And there's, there's other stuff that we know is really important, such as you know, processing, redescribing uh, knowledge, explaining knowledge, new knowledge to yourself or, or a partner that we know are effective. So even where we have a good evidence base that the translation is, is not easy. And then there are kind of little tensions between uh, neuroscience and psychology. So um, there's an aspect of, of psychology that this gets us into a kind of slightly kind of technical area. There's a thing called uh, near transfer and a, and a thing called far transfer. So when, when you train on a skill, um, near transfer means you, you just generally get better at, at you know that the skill that you're practicing. Far transfer means uh, other abilities which aren't similar also improve. So let's say it's an old-fashioned thing now that, that we have to do lots of rote learning of poetry. Okay, it's a huge long poems, and, and we have to practice learning. Uh, repeat the poem by heart and, and what that's going to do so the old idea goes is that's going to improve your memory generally you have a better memory and that'll be useful uh, going forward um, but it turns out that you don't get that far transfer a general improvement of uh, of memory what you get is an enhanced ability to memorize poetry so 
it's really the neuroscience that gives us an insight into that in, in that the, the brain has circuits that are specific for particular content. So as you strengthen those circuits, you get better at doing that thing, but you don't really get generally better. But still within psychology, there's this big, big push to believe that we will get far transfer somehow. Uh, it's a very kind of, it's a big momentum or inertia behind that idea. And you'll see it in lots of, you know, attempts to find magic bullets. What's the magical thing that we, that we could get kids to that would make them generally more intelligent? Should we get them to learn a musical instrument? Should we get them to learn chess? Should we get them to learn a second language? Should we get them to meditate? All or practice working memory. All of these kind of things are proposed as a sort of magic bullet that will make them generally more able. So, so that's a kind of big push from psychology in a particular direction of where we're not paying attention to the neuroscience. Yeah, so I, I mean, I guess this idea of magic bullets is really interesting. It's also really important, I guess, to set out the limitations of any field. And I guess it's important to say that educational neuroscience is not a source of instant classroom ready knowledge. I mean, there are limitations to what you can do. Yeah, that's right, for sure. Um, so this is an academic field. You you will get cowboys out there. You will get commercial firms that, that are trying to peddle you uh, brain training and they'll have pictures of brains uh, you know, on their adverts and so forth. So, so, you know, we have to work through that area. This is an academic field. It is uh, gradually trying to progress the field to accumulate evidence to understand what works and what doesn't work with a, with a mix of different types of studies from sort of uh, big randomized control studies of, of whether a certain teaching method generally generates an improvement to sort of small-scale child-centered approaches. So it's a gradual cumulative field. And we have to be careful not to uh, translate that, try and, try and uh, run before we can walk, as it were. And, and also we need to be aware that, that, that education is a cultural phenomenon. So I mean, uh, without kind of saying that there are any magic bullets or clear answers it's really interesting to talk about a few areas that you've actually been researching and kind of dig down to the complexity of this and I mentioned first of all in your work in in the area of spatial cognition I mean you've done work on children learning maths and children learning science I mean what's this area of your research telling us about the brain and learning? So there's two things I'd, I'd say there so I've, got, I've done some uh, work with the uh, my former PhD student um, Katie Gilligan and uh, Emily Farron where, where we've been looking at uh, the role of spatial cognition in maths. And, 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 and the insight this gives you is that, that once you're inside the brain, there is no such thing as maths. There are lots of different kind of small scale cognitive operations that you're doing. Some of them are, in, you know, understanding what math symbols are and, and kind of like sentence like language like structures, facts about maths, times tables to be memorized. Uh, so maths looks a little bit like language, but but there are also different aspects of it which are quite spatial. So geometry and shapes and graphs and, and scaling. So, so part of that research has, has been to, to understand how um, if we just focus on, on the language aspects that, that, that kids might be struggling with aspects of maths just because they, they don't have the, the spatial skills. And so that there may be some uh, advantages to, to um, for certainly for, for kids who are struggling with particular areas of maths, about giving them some extra training in those spatial skills. So that, that's a view that, that from the brain perspective, there aren't really academic topics. There are lots of different bits of information that you pull together in, into particular context. 
we have done a little bit of work. I mean, this is not, not just our lab, but more broadly about understanding the role of emotions uh, in learning. And, and you may have come across that with the idea of, of mass anxiety and, and the role that, that stress plays in learning, that a uh, little bit stress is good for you because it kind of brings you into the moment. Too much stress stops you learning. And so having the right emotional approach to a topic is important. And, and obviously the teacher plays a role in, in modeling or engendering uh, the appropriate uh, approach. We want curiosity. Uh, we don't want fear. Oh, that one sounds fascinating and really, really complex. And I know that for some of the research you've done in terms of maths learning, for example, it has actually resulted in, in building um, math software, building maths games. So could you talk us through the kind of the stages of the research where you are actually kind of developing products and testing them out in classrooms based on, on your own neuroscience research? This project has been going for about five years. It's called uh, Unlock is the, the name of the project, and it's led by uh, Denis Marichal. So we start there with, a, with an educational challenge, a problem that, that um, kids, primary age kids can struggle to learn certain kinds of concepts in science and maths. Uh, and these are counterintuitive concepts. Um, in, in science, these are concepts that, that just don't fit in with children, young children's everyday experience. So if you're trying to tell them that, that uh, the earth is round, they've had a number of years of experience running around playing football on flat pitches, right? So the world seems to them to be flat and all of a sudden uh, you're telling them that the earth is round. You want them to learn that, but when they go back outside and play football, they should carry on treating it like it's flat. So, so children, children can struggle to bring in these new scientific, scientific concepts that, that don't fit with their everyday experience. So there's a particular educational problem there. We bring in the neuroscience and, and part of the neuroscience tells us that one of the problems here is um, when you learn new, new knowledge, uh, you don't overwrite the previous knowledge. You learn the, the new knowledge in a different context and your job is to uh, um, apply your new scientific knowledge in appropriate circumstances, uh, um, tests or reasoning about science and, and so forth. So what, what you need there are skills in inhibitory control of suppressing uh, task irrelevant information and activating the new information. But crucially, as we've talked about, there aren't these general circuits that, that the kind of inhibitory control you need is specific to the maths or science content you need in that situation. So what that points to is you may be able to improve kids learning by training them in this kind of suppressing irrelevant information, inhibitory control. But that training needs to be embedded in, in the subject matter, in, in the syllabus uh, for science and maths for the appropriately aged children. So that was kind of stage two. Stage three is then working with teachers and, and computer programmers to build a kind of online learning activity, a computer game that will present uh, maths and science problems with counterintuitive elements and help kids inhibit irrelevant knowledge. So this is a, a game called Stop and Think where the, the children are, are train themselves to pause before responding about a given question. You know, are, are dolphins, uh, are they fish or are they mammals? You know, if you answer too quickly, you go, oh, it's a fish, it's in the sea. But we know that it, they have lungs, they breathe air, and it's actually a mammal. So we work with teachers to develop this game. That's uh, uh, stage three. Stage four, you've got to check that that is useful in the classroom. So that's, that's piloting the game, taking it into schools, 
ultimately a, a big trial that we ran with 6,000 children to demonstrate that uh, a term of doing doing this game three times a week for uh, 15 minutes, so 45 minutes a week for, for a term, actually had measurable improvements at their end-of-year science and maths exams. Right? Uh, so actually demonstrating that, that you can, uh, that this is going to be useful, not just on improving on this game, but improving end-of-year outcomes. Uh, we're currently in like stage five, believe it or not, and this is what's called an, an effectiveness trial that, that, that we piloted, that we checked it worked in a, in a big trial. We need now to package it in a form where we just give it out to teachers and see whether they find it useful, as it were, in the wild. And then if, if we get there, that's currently a big trial being set up. The final stage is to try and work with kind of commercial developers uh, with publishers to turn that into a form that, that teachers will want to use, will find it attractive and uh, helpful in the classroom rather than being something prescriptive that, that is coming from scientists. So you can see that takes a long time. Start off with an educational challenge to bring in the neuroscience to come up with an activity that might be useful uh, in, in combination with teachers and to check it works and then to turn it into a, a polished form that will actually be useful. I mean, that, that's fascinating. And I can see how that turns a lot of kind of educational research on its head. I mean, starting off with this, there's no such thing as maths all the way through to actually having a tangible product with an impact. That's not the kind of thing education researchers do. Now, I can understand the methodology of the RCTs and testing out the product, but stage one and stage two, how are you actually kind of methodologically finding out these things about how the brain works? I mean, I'm imagining MRI scanners and lab-based work. I mean, what's the methods there that you're actually kind of doing the neuroscience with? Yeah, so I wish neuroscience were just a single thing, right? But, but it's a whole field of lots of researchers doing different things, and, and they're all talking to each other and, and trying to have kind of converging evidence. So we know the goal. The goal is to understand how the structure and biology of, of the brain delivers the function that it can do, how it can, can guide behavior, support our minds, uh, allow us to think. It's actually a suite of, of different methods. We do tend to think, if we're thinking about people, that neuroscience means brain imaging. And for sure, the, the emergence of, of brain imaging has, has propelled forward research. So we do things like we use magnetic resonance imaging to, to look at uh, uh, the different composition of white matter and gray matter. We use it to look at blood flow and see when uh, uh, the blood is oxygenated or deoxygenated. We know there's more areas of the brain that are working harder, attract more oxygenated blood to support their function. Uh, we measure things like electrical fields on, on the scalp, which are actually a direct reflection of neural firings or even magnetic fields. So there's that, that kind of brain imaging, large scale, putting people in, in scanners, measuring what they're doing. But also that there are much smaller levels where we're, we're looking at uh, individual neurons. We can now grow neurons in uh, Petri dishes. We can have small numbers of neurons which are connected to each other in Petri dishes. We can even grow what's called organelles, little, little clumps of uh, sets of neurons which, which wire themselves together. So this kind of the, the, the low-level biology that, that now increasingly in, incorporates genetics and understanding how gene expression is, is shaping uh, neuronal function. Then we have things like uh, animal models. So we, you know, we study the, the digestive uh, systems of, of worms and look at the small clusters of neurons that, that, that seem to control that try and understand how the electrical activity and uh, biochemical activity controls the function. 
So we have these lots of different scales. We're trying to look at, say, wiring diagrams of the, of the brain, as it were, to, to try and put all of these together uh, into a, a sense of, of, uh, of what the brain is doing. I think that there is a big challenge here in, in this uh, dialogue between different disciplines. What, what is it that teachers are, are supposed to know about the brain? Are they, are they supposed to know about uh, the latest research about uh, braining, brain imaging methods? And, and I would say not. I, I would say that, that, that teachers need to know a sort of gist of function, the, the important aspects of um, how the brain is working uh, that, that's going to be relevant to the, their day-to-day -day function. I, I also think that uh, um, this is part of, a, of, of an approach of this evidence-informed cumulative um, uh, method of, of education of the importance of convergent evidence about understanding what works and, and accumulating evidence bases. So, I mean, just before we move on, I mean, just previously, you mentioned something really interesting, which I didn't quite catch, I mean, the gist of brain function. I mean, what do we actually mean by that? So... Um, Paul Howard Jones, uh, educational neuroscience researcher in the UK, has, has articulated what what he thinks are um, one ways uh, one way of conceiving the, the learning in the classroom in terms of, of brain function of having uh, sort of three or four phases to it. The, the, the first aspect is to engage uh, the student in learning, so to, to make it interesting, to capture their attention. The second is is to build knowledge in them using you know, an understanding of, of how new knowledge uh, can be presented that, that builds on prior knowledge. Then there's a consolidation phase where you have to make sure that that knowledge is not just going to slip away by rehearsing it or uh, um, getting you know, self-explanation, as, as I talked about, as a powerful way to, to consolidate knowledge. And, and then application about trying to uh, use that, that acquired knowledge in, in new situations. And you can articulate the kinds of brain areas that are involved, the brain networks, and, and what will best feed into activating those networks in, in different phases. So I, I said that we would move on to the, the practicalities of all this. So, I mean, what do teachers actually need to know about educational neuroscience? I mean, it's probably unrealistic to expect most teachers to become expert in everything that you've just talked about. So, I mean, you've written previously about four priorities that you think educators really need to get their heads around. I mean, can you talk us through these? If you look at what the brain is doing, its number one priority is what we would call sensory motor. This is a system to enable you to make the right, right motor actions, control your body, uh, appropriate to the, the perceptions you're perceiving in the moment. So it's very short term, you know, you want to be doing the right things at the right time, controlling your body. And that's number one priority. If you can't do that, you're in trouble. Second priority are the emotions. So these the emotions, we have particular structures in the brain, it's called the, the limbic system, things like the, the amygdala and the insula and the hippocampus, these structures that, that they're so important Important for the organism, things like uh, um, fight or flight, or, or uh, making sure that we're not too hungry or too thirsty, um, sensing danger, sensing opportunities for pleasure, these kind of things, uh, that they're, they're structures that are deliberately concerned about that. So that's the, the, the second priority. The third priority, we are social primates and we really care about other people. And large areas of our brain are just bothered about, is anyone looking at me? Who, who do I want to sit next to? What do you think of me? All of these aspects of, of social 
cognition. The fourth priority is these kind of abstract ideas about what maths is, about what, what a, what a uh, good storytelling techniques, all these kind of abstract ideas, uh, geography, what does a map do, all that is essentially cognition, right? Fourth priority is cognition. Education mainly bothered about cognition. Okay, it's not really bothered about sensory motor. Yeah, you've got to do handwriting, it's got to be good. And uh, emotions, yeah, kids need to be motivated, but, um, you know, and we need to behave well, not mess around in, in the back row with our, our classmates when we should be paying attention. Mainly what it's trying to do, the content of education is cognition. So how do we deliver on that goal? We try and make sure that the first three priorities are aligned with that fourth priority. So that the sensory motor skills and the physical environment are helping with the cognition. That emotion is not getting in the way by making you anxious, but it's helping by making you curious. That we're using the social environment in a positive way, not as not to be distracting, not to be scared of your teacher, but uh, for your teacher to, to motivate you to be a mentor and for you to do peer group learning. So your, your peers are supporting you. So that's, that's a way of going from an understanding of evolution shaping the brain to understanding how you, you might maximize the opportunities for learning in the classroom. think we should be looking and, and in particular what are the big kind of interesting areas or the big breakthroughs that are possibly coming through on the horizon in the next 10 years what will we be talking about in terms of neuroeducation so where are we headed um i think there are interesting directions going forward um the pandemic has made us focus a lot on the use of, of technology and uh the aspects in in which we can learn online um that maybe feeds into to our interest in the personalization of learning, of trying to give children learning opportunities that um, fit to their current knowledge and, and, and focus on areas where they're struggling and give them extra experience or extra um, uh, feedback in, in those areas where they're struggling. And lastly, there are kind of technological areas that, that are moving forward, uh, particularly genetics is giving us the ability um, to directly from the DNA make predictions, not very powerful predictions, but at least give us hints uh, about um, what challenges children may face or what, what strengths they may have going forward. So we may be able to, as soon as a baby is born, uh, analyze their DNA and um, understand if there's any risks, for example, of, of the child um, developing dyslexia or struggling to, to learn to read in, in mid-childhood. And with that information that's available straight away, we can do what, what we know works, which is, is practicing on, on the child's ability to uh, manipulate speech sounds. Uh, and if we do that, if we strengthen their phonology, by the time they enter the classroom, they'll be in a much better position so that that dyslexia never emerges. So we're not faced with the challenge of the child's already 10. They've already had a history of five years of struggling in the classroom, of falling behind. So you can see that the kind of golden opportunity there, but there are huge risks. OK, so there are ethical issues about uh, is education about testing DNA at birth? I mean, the, the child can't consent to that. 
and all of a sudden they're being tested. We know there are risks about labeling children and, and um, as having, you know, certain kind of possible outcomes and then those becoming self-fulfilling prophecies. So um, that technology means we have to have a debate as society about how we use information, uh, who's it best for, what are the issues about data privacy. Um, so, you know, in a medical model, it all makes sense. You know, this is to, to preserve health, but in educational, it's not quite so clear. Uh, so there are challenges going for there are opportunities, but, but I also think there are, there are risks and, and areas where we certainly have to have a, a debate in society. And as we've talked about all this conversation, it's incredibly complex. There's no magic bullet. There's a huge amount of translation work and this need for dialogue as well. I mean, this has all been genuinely fascinating. Thanks ever so much for actually taking the time to kind of talk it through to a non-psychologist. Education researchers, I think, clearly need to carry on making these links and having these conversations. So thanks ever so much. Great. Thanks for inviting me.